Good morning. We are still in summer, as you can tell by the fact that it's summer outside. Um, we paused our Matthew series for, uh, for the summer, and we'll get back into it after September long weekend when school starts and, and everything is kind of back on a normal schedule. We finished our last series on glory and on God's uh, purposes for what he is doing in creation. And so we're going to finish out the summer doing a, a number of psalms, um, picking up where we left off last summer. Many of you weren't here last summer yet. Um, but last summer we did 10 psalms through the summer, and so we're going to pick up in Psalm 11. Uh, we've got a couple of our young guys are going to be doing some preaching and, and some visitors to round out the summer, so you can be praying for them as well. Um, and again, we're going to, now for the next five weeks, we're going to uh, look at some of the psalms. So, if you will, why don't you turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Psalm 11. And once you're there, then please stand as we read God's Word. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So in some of the Psalms, we are made aware of the circumstances or um, the occasion for why David or or the other psalmist wrote as they did. And for some of them, we really have no explanation as to the exact circumstances. And this is one where we don't know for certain what the exact circumstances are of this psalm. However, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, suggests that the occasion here uh, happens to do with Saul's resentment of David. And many of you will recall the story uh, where Saul flings his javelin at David. Uh, Matthew Henry and some other commentators think that that is the occasion for this psalm, uh, and it may well be. It actually fits with some of the language, but we don't know for certain. David starts this psalm in, I think, the correct way. The way that we all need to shape our thinking. He starts by saying, at the outset, he makes his commitment known. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. And if that's all you take away this morning, then take that away. Because this is where David also ends up after he works out what it means that he takes refuge in the Lord. He's making his commitment known right at the outset. He's declaring his final position, which is that he takes refuge in the Lord. And in fact, this opening line does serve as a summary for the whole psalm. So we see how important David's starting point is to this psalm. David starts by saying he takes refuge in the Lord... He works his way through what this looks like, how his thought process works. And by the end, not surprisingly, he shows what it looks like to take refuge in the Lord. He ends up right back where he's started, which actually, if we think about our own thoughts, that's how our thought does work. We end up where we start. And I challenge people, this isn't a message about apologetics by any stretch, 
But one thing I try to do when I teach apologetics is to show people the starting point you pick will determine where you end up. If you start with the God of Scripture, guess where your thought process will lead you to? The God of Scripture. If you start by saying my experience is authoritative and you view the world through that lens, guess where you're going to end up? With validation that your experience is authoritative. If you start by saying logic is my starting point, you're going to end up back at logic. Your starting point that you pick when you think about the world determines where you end up in the end. And David starts at the right place. David starts by declaring his allegiance to the Lord. He makes his most basic commitment known right at the outset. He's intentional about it. And as a result, his whole reasoning process is correct and he arrives at the correct conclusion. We must start with the Lord. Nothing makes sense if we start anywhere other than a genuine, deep faith in the Lord. And he goes on. The second half of verse 1. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so David is quoting his friends or his advisors here. And clearly, what they see are circumstances that are scary, they're fearful, and their fear is turning into panic. So the advice, the counsel that they are giving to David is saying that he ought to flee to the mountains because his enemies are posing a threat. His enemies are readying to, uh, to attack David and his men, to oppose them. Their arrow is fitted, their bow is bent, they're ready for war. David, you better get out of here. And further, David's men seem to give a certain sense of helplessness in their counsel to David. Basically what they're doing is asking, what difference can a remnant of a few righteous people make if the foundations are destroyed? What's the point? What's the point? And the foundations here could refer both or either to the men who serve kind of as foundational characters in the kingdom or probably more likely to the foundational principles which uphold all of society, i.e. God's law. So if this foundation is gone, if people don't respect God's law, if everything's turning into chaos, they're asking in a very cynical and cowardly way, I would say, what can the righteous do? What point is there? Give up. It's a lost cause. Give up, David. Take off. And we do know that if the foundation of God's law is taken away, the center gives out and we can expect everything to come unraveled. This is what happens when there's no unifying center among a people. So in any society, then as now, and we see this in our own time as well, if people divorce themselves from bedrock principles of worshiping the triune God, of honoring His law, and coming to Him boldly for grace where we have sinned, that we may have peace with Him, things do fall into disarray. They must. There's nothing holding it together. In a society like that, it is not long before there is social and political polarization, where you have warring factions, everyone doing as they see right in their own eyes, leads to economic hardship, to confusion. And this was certainly the case in Israel, but it also sounds somewhat familiar today, doesn't it? The center has given out. There is nothing holding a people together, and we do all do what is right in our own eyes, and we are reaping the whirlwind as a result. And David's friends rightly see the circumstance. And so in the face of this turbulence, in the face of this upheaval, David's advisors suggest that it's hopeless. After all, what can the righteous do? 
And this is another way of asking, what's the point? What's the point? Many of these people may have had a memory of Israel as the theonomic kingdom where God's law is respected, where true worship was supposed to happen, and where the customs of people would have made true worship in the living God seem normal and natural and feasible. But now as they see their rulers forget their first duty, which is towards God, they see the center giving out. They see people doing what's right in their own eyes. They see the glue of society coming undone. And what was supposed to be a strong and unified and harmonious people of God are now quickly disintegrating. The foundations are being destroyed. And so given David's proximity to the, to the throne, and again, if we understand that this has to do with the, the rivalry between Saul and David, uh, as Matthew Henry suggests, or whether this psalm is written while David is king, he knows, even if he's not king, he knows he is destined for the throne. And so he feels the weight of the foundations being destroyed, probably more than most do. And when we get to the point here where David turns the objection back to his friends, John MacArthur notes in his commentary on this passage, this is MacArthur saying, also, the solidarity of the theocratic king and the theocratic people is obvious, as indicated by the shifts back and forth between singular and plural phrasings. The developing verses and lines of this psalm reveal that although two different voices were speaking to David, in yet another context of personal and national crisis, he had made up his mind to trust only in the Lord. And you see that language shifting. David sees the weight of the people as a whole on himself. He's not just speaking in the first singular person. He sees his responsibility to the people as a whole, to the kingdom, to God's people. So again, whether he is the king or the future king, David understands the weight of being the covenant head over Israel. And this actually is a helpful kind of bridge from last week when we look at the role of headship, of covenant headship, of federal headship. Fathers and husbands standing as heads of their family. David has this job in spades as the head of a whole nation. And the covenantal head is responsible even when he's not at fault. And I use the analogy of a captain of a ship who's responsible even if someone else is at fault for grounding that ship. The captain is responsible. Covenant heads are responsible even when they're not at fault. And so in the home, one practical way that this should make a difference is if we see sin entering our home, fathers, and you see your son is on websites he shouldn't be on, what you don't do as a covenant head is say, we raised you better, you should know better, how could this happen? A covenant head says, it appears that sin has entered our home. It appears our family is sinning. And I'm going to need all of you to cooperate with me as we drive this out, as we go to war against this sin. There's a collective weight that proper covenant heads feel that they put on their shoulders as responsible for others around them. So a covenant father recognizes that he is responsible for what has come into his home and he approaches his son more along the lines of let's do this together rather than how could you. And this is what Job did when he took his children's sin to the Lord and this is what David is doing right now when his friends and advisors encourage him to take a panicked or a helpless approach. David is demonstrating how differently the eyes of faith look at our circumstances. And so even if David's friends and advisors were believers, and they very likely were, and they were genuinely concerned about righteousness, 
Their approach that they're advising shows a level of panic. It shows a level of individualism and hopelessness that still to this day is far too often found among God's people. There may be times where a temporary or a strategic retreat are important, either because we need to buy time or we need a new center of operations because the environment is hostile. That may happen. That's happened in the Bible. That's happened in church history. And that may sometimes be the right play. But one thing we can never do, even if we're recalibrating, is to panic and to despair. Those are not postures that a believer should ever take. David's friends are encouraging David to flee, to take care of himself, to run to his mountain. Because after all, things are getting really bad here, and there's really nothing that a few righteous people can do. Right? And you hear that in the kind of despair that often uh, we resign ourselves to when things look really bad. You know, don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Get out of Dodge. It's just getting worse and worse. Or, as we know, the spies from Israel once reported, there's giants in the land. Let's give up. There's no point. There's giants in the land. They're big. They're bigger than us. Let's just go home and call it a day. Okay? Let's take the easy route. And there may be sometimes an adrenaline rush that people get about the sky falling. And we see them all around us. But David takes all this alarm, all the despair, all the bad advice from his friends to give up and to just take care of number one, And he's in disbelief that they could even talk this way. Because he's summarizing what they've said. And then he says, how can you say that? How can you say flee to your mountain? How dare you say that? I trust in the Lord. That's how this is opening. He's saying, I trust in the Lord. How could you possibly tell me to just take care of number one and take off? That's how this psalm opens. How can you think that way? Do you not have the eyes of faith? Do you not trust in the Lord? Why are you panicking? Why are you telling me to panic? Don't say that. David knows that unbelief sees giants in the land and either looks to escape or at least take the easy route and assure yourself before you get started that the mission is completely impossible. But the eyes of faith look through the circumstances to the purposes of God and then press ahead, not because we're naive, not because we think it'll be a cakewalk, but in joyful confidence that even if David has difficult days ahead of him, He is carrying out God's purposes, and none of God's purposes can be thwarted. He goes on in verse 4, and he works out his thought, what it looks like to trust in the Lord. And he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And so look at how David counters his advisors. David says the Lord is in his temple. And so often when life gets tough, when people are in difficulty, when evil seems to be advancing, when the wicked are prospering, a very common question is where is God? Where's God in all this? And we talked about that a little bit this morning in Sunday school. This is a natural question. It's natural that people ask those kinds of questions. But David answers it. The Lord's not gone anywhere. He is in his temple, ruling and reigning as he always has. God's not gone anywhere. God is in these circumstances. And the physical temple that existed in Jerusalem was, of course, a symbolic monument of God's presence among his people. And David knows that the reality is greater than the symbol. As majestic as this temple 
ought to be one day, uh, there's something greater yet, and that is the reality that God is sitting above all the cosmos. God is sitting, or Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is seated in heaven above the cosmos, ruling and reigning every last detail as he always has. God sees everything and everyone. And the mention of eyelids may seem odd at first until you think of it as though God is squinting. He's seeing the tiniest little details. He's looking through his eyelids. Nothing is escaping his sight. Even the smallest detail is known by God. And verse 5 serves as the basis for why the righteous don't need to panic or look for a way out. Because this is the dividing line between uh, what God's actions in history are doing for believers and for unbelievers. It says that God tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You see the difference there. The righteous are tested, but the righteous are not condemned. Okay? Very often when we struggle, it feels like God is punishing us, or God's love has gone away, or God is angry at me. And if you're a Christian, God is not angry with you. His love has not gone away. He may be testing you, but he does not hate you. Okay? His anger has been spent on Christ. God tests the righteous, testing, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God's anger is reserved for those who do not know him in a saving way. And so we know that all people, righteous and unrighteous, both face adversity. But for those who have placed their trust in Christ, for the righteous whose sins are forgiven, affliction is a test and not a judgment. Okay? A father who loves his children does not cast them out of the family when they sin. He may discipline them, but he does not send them away. Okay? God tests. And God tests the righteous because he has their eternal good in mind. And perhaps David is remembering Israel's lost years in the desert. And with what Moses has to say about Israel's testing in Deuteronomy 8.16, where he says that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. These difficult circumstances are working for a weight of glory. They are working for good, to do you good in the end. If you are a son or a daughter of God, the most difficult circumstances you will face, God is doing you a kindness. God is doing you good in the final end. If your sins are forgiven, if you have come to Christ to be covered by his righteousness, all your guilt and shame are gone for good. There's nothing to be embarrassed by. There's nothing to feel ashamed of. The guilt is removed. You don't have to live in shame. You can live in freedom, that God is doing you good. And when difficulty comes, as it most certainly will, you never need to ask yourself if God is with you or if he's kicking you out of his kingdom or unadopting you somehow. That cannot happen. This is impossible. You are his forevermore. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So God may test you. He may refine you, sometimes even with fire at times, but his anger has been sent away completely. And so God's purposes are clearly set apart here between those who have been adopted into his family and those who are persisting in their sin. It is not his children, but the wicked and the violent whom God hates. And I think last summer, maybe in Psalm 7, described that. It seems jarring in our manner of speech, that God hates anyone. We don't typically talk that way, right? But the Bible does talk that way. So how do we understand this, that God so loved the world, and yet clearly there's a list of names of people that God hates, sometimes personally by name he hates them, and sometimes it's a category of people, like here, those who love violence that God hates. And we have to think 
carefully here. There is a general sense in which God loves all in his creation, where he gives gifts to everybody in his creation. So even unbelievers enjoy many gifts and kindnesses from God because in a general sense, God does love his whole creation and he is kind and he is patient and he is forbearing. And that is called God's love of beneficence, where he is kind and loving and long-suffering to all people, believers and unbelievers alike. Even unbelievers get gifts from God that they do not deserve. But there is clearly a dividing line between those who are covered in the righteousness of Christ and those who are not. There is a saving love that God has for those who are in his family that are not there for those who are opposed to him. And this love, this special saving love that God applies to individuals as they come to Christ in faith is called his love of complacency, where God is satisfied. And so if you're wondering, how do we square this? This isn't the main emphasis of what I want to say this morning, but it is a helpful category to understand that there is no ultimate conflict between saying God so loves the world and God hates the wicked. There is no conflict there. Graphic language is used, that it's raining coals are for the wicked. And these coals are not for the righteous. There's fire, there's sulfur, and there's a scorching wind which will be the cup of the wicked. And there's a theme in the Psalms about the cup and what this represents. And it's maybe fitting that we're looking at this as we prepare for communion this morning. In Psalm 23.5, which many of us are familiar with and maybe have committed to memory, The cup there is overflowing blessings, right? Overflowing blessing from God as we sit at his table. And yet elsewhere, such as in Psalm 75, 8, the the cup is foaming with judgment, which the wicked must drink down to the dregs. Okay, you got to drink this all the way down. No stopping part way. And when Christ prays before his execution, he also speaks of God's judgment in terms of a cup. Please take this cup from me. If there's another way, let's do it that way because this cup looks fearful. And we do know that for all those who are in Christ, Christ did indeed drink the cup of Psalm 75, 8. He drank it down to the dregs. He drank down the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop so that you don't have to. So that the cup you get to enjoy is the cup of Psalm 23, 5. A cup overflowing with blessings from God because he is pleased at you for being his righteous son or daughter. And so this overflowing blessing is found in verse 7, where God delights in his righteous children. He delights in you. Do you know that? God delights in you. If you are his child, you have been covered with the righteousness of Christ. He does not see you and your sin. He sees you covered in the righteousness of his son. God delights in you. He is pleased with you. He is well pleased with you. Your deeds please him. And you shall behold his face. The righteous are allowed access into the presence of God. And they sit at his table to enjoy his choicest gifts. And so what can we learn from this? Well, one is that God must always be our reference point. No matter the situation at hand. God is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Not just of the Christian life, but of everything. The cosmos. All history. All facts are created facts. All truth is God's truth. All truth leads us to him if we are understanding it correctly. So for us to make sense of any given detail, we must have access to the big story, and we have that through God's word, through scripture. We have access to the big story, so we know where to put the details, the little pieces. God must be the starting point 
and the destination and the guardrails in all of our thoughts. When we think about our thoughts, when we think about actions, when we think about the meaning of things, we must always start in reference to God. How is God being glorified in this? Yes, even in difficult circumstances. We may not know the precise things that he is accomplishing. We may not get an answer to why me and not the other guy. Why is this in my family? That family seems to get through. That crooked businessman is prospering and here I am working 75 hours a week and not getting ahead. Why, 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 why? You can always stop and say, no, this must be in reference to God somehow. God is being glorified. Our thoughts need to start there, be channeled by that, and then end there. What is God doing? How is God being glorified? And how am I living a life that is going to bring him glory, that is consistent with what I say with my mouth? David starts the psalm out by taking refuge in the Lord, and not surprisingly, he concludes with the assurance that he has found refuge in the Lord. And this means that we must always view our circumstances through the lens of Scripture. Never read Scripture in light of your experience or your circumstances. It must be the other way around. You understand your circumstances and your experience because of what Scripture says about them. And we are not to give in to a spirit of despair or resignation. David was advised that the situation was too grim. Things were too bad. Change, reformation is so infeasible, it's not even on the table of options to discuss. His only option is to escape while he still can, because he won't be able to make a difference. The ship is sinking no matter what. The foundations are destroyed and the righteous are done for. There's no point. And I said that there, I think there is something in a human constitution that maybe finds a certain adrenaline rush in hopelessness or in despair or in doom. And we see this both in Christian forms and in secular forms. There's plenty of alarming end-time prophecies that exist in the secular world as well. And I've mentioned them, and perhaps you can think of some of them. Right? The impending ice age in the 70s. Everyone panic. We're all going to die. The world is freezing. Five years later, everybody panic, quick. We're all going to burn up because of global warming. Panic, panic, panic. It's too late. It's too late. There's a hole in the ozone. Panic. Panic about that. The sun's light is getting through. Please panic because uh, it's irreparable. Until 10 years later, it was providentially repaired. Okay? Uh, acid rain is bad. Animal agriculture is bad. The year 2000 was going to destroy our computer and banking system. We have a whole new host of new carbon-based sins and health emergencies and so forth. There's, there's something in the human constitution that must enjoy panic. It must. It, it must be some form of an adrenaline rush. And as Christians, we can sometimes fall into this too, with unhealthy fixations on, uh, on bad things and, and the plans of evil people. And this is true. We don't need to be... Uh, remember the movie Pollyanna? This, this little girl who saw the good in everything and she gets, frankly, very burdensome by the end. Okay? You know the guy that, that uh, golfed with someone? Every shot, no matter how much you sprayed it off into the... Bo- oh, good shot, good shot, good shot. That's, it's good. That gets a little tiresome if everybody's just always happy and everything's great all the time. That's not realistic. Okay? But there's somewhere between despair and pretending like everything is all fine when it's not. Okay? There is evil around David. There was evil around David. There's evil all around us. Yes, the wicked are plotting their plans. But we need to not get off course. The theme here is not to get into the adrenaline rush of catastrophe just around the corner, but of seeing the purposes of God in this. 
Giving into fear, giving into panic, looking for a way of escape may feel natural at many times. But the mark of David's godliness here is that he pushes back against this urge. Pushes back. He's not looking just to take care of number one and get out of here and escape. He's taking the people's problems on and saying we must push ahead. And as covenant head, he actually has a certain moral authority to help the people find their courage and to push ahead. And we have a modern example of that uh, in World War II. I don't know if any of you have seen the king's speech. Right? A, a king has real power to give courage to his people, to incite courage. And if church leaders or if fathers or if uh, heads of nations start wringing their hands and panicking, what, what do we expect the people around us to do? Okay? Part of your job, dad, part of your job, husband, part of your job, church elders, is to find joy, is to find joy, to find confidence, to be able to find a belly laugh even in the worst situations. There's still something to laugh about here. There's still something to talk about as we gather the family around the table and try to instill courage, to try to see through the difficulty, to try to see through the circumstances to God's purposes for us. However, pushing back does take a lot of intentional effort, which is why there's always this other temptation to be like Pollyanna and pretend like nothing's wrong when in fact there is something wrong. Okay? So we need to be real. We don't say peace, peace when there is no peace. We don't say everything's awesome, everything's great when it's not. But we also don't give in to despair. We're realistic and then we push ahead. We have to be realistic about the idolatry and the sin and corruption in our homes and in the world and in this church. But being realistic with the eyes of faith means that we're looking at the world as something that the meek inherit. It's not something that we abandon. It's something we inherit. And we need to work accordingly. Faith requires, as its object, something other than itself. David's not just having faith in faith. He's not having faith in good wishes. And people often talk about faith as though it's some magical thing today, right? Well, you just got to have faith. Okay, great. Faith in what? Right? And every, every Olympian who goes to the podium says, well, you just got to believe in yourself. Well, I believe in myself. I'm never going to do that dive. <laughs> okay? I, I don't care how much faith I have in myself. I, I, I'm not a diver. I'm not a marathon runner. I'm, there's just certain things I can't do. Rather, the object of faith is not faith itself. It's faith in the living God. We behold the throne of the sovereign God, his supremacy, his majesty, his dominion, his eternity, his transcendence, his mystery, his purity, and his holiness. That's where we place our faith. And when we meditate on the fact that this is the throne of the universe, God is sitting over the universe governing all things. Sometimes I try to picture in my mind when I'm tempted to give in to anxiety, just zoom out. And then my farm becomes unnoticeable on Google Earth. And then I zoom out some more. And now you, you can't even see the province of Manitoba distinctly. And you keep zooming out. And all of a sudden, you're Hubble telescope type stuff. And you see, what's the Hubble telescope seeing? Is it seeing one-tenth of one percent of God's creation? I don't know. But suddenly, Matt Plett isn't the star of the show once you're out far enough. Okay? We need a sense of perspective. We need to see Christ sitting on his throne. That's where our faith goes. The psalmist can persevere and man his station not because he has faith in himself or faith in faith or faith that things just for no reason whatsoever always work out. He can do these things because he has faith in the living God. He sees the throne of God. And the cup that God gives each of us is real. 
And if we remain in our sin, we can expect the dreaded cup that Christ already drank for those who come to him. But for those of us who are in Christ, there's always a place at God's banquet table where shame and guilt have been entirely removed and where there is eternal love, comfort, and fellowship with him and with one another. And this cup overflows with the mercy and blessings that come from God. Yes, difficulty comes. Yes, pain is real. Yes, sin must always be fought. But for the righteous, these challenges are tests to strengthen us and not judgments to destroy us. And anxiety and panic are the natural byproducts of guilt and shame. I truly believe this. I think it's not surprising that despite our incredible material blessings, we are the richest, healthiest, longest living people who have ever existed in human history. And we have an epidemic of depression and anxiety. That makes no sense. Except it does. It makes total sense. If your sins are not forgiven, the world is scary. The Bible says uh, that the unrighteous flee when no one pursues. The sound of a leaf drives people with a guilty conscience running away. Okay? Sin makes us cowardly. Sin makes us scared. Sin makes us anxious. Sin makes us depressed. And I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you won't struggle with these things. I personally struggle deeply with many of them. But we have to have a message to preach back and to push back against ourselves. We no longer, as a society, have the tools to deal with real guilt and real shame. And so to be scared and isolated does make sense. People are made in the image of God. And so there is an innate, suppressed knowledge that we have that we're sinful. And that sin must be answered. Deep down, everybody knows judgment is real. And Christians are not immune from anxiety and depression and loneliness. I will say that as strongly as I can too. But we do have the tools to fight back. When we feel anxious or condemned or embarrassed, we can go boldly to the throne of God and lay legitimate claim to the righteousness that he gives us, to the confidence that he gives us as his children. And so we can say, what's the worst that can happen to me? Honestly, think about that. What's the worst that can happen to me? The very worst thing in our experience is death, which is an early promotion for a Christian. What is the worst thing that can happen to me? Why are we scared? Samuel Rutherford, the great Puritan pastor and theologian, uh, sums this up perfectly when he talks about affliction and difficulty. And he says, When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. That's what we need to do. When you're in the cellar of affliction, God is giving you something. Look for his choicest wines. Look for his blessings. Because after all, the same truth of Moses is true of us. He's looking to do us good in the end. And lastly, in terms of application, the cowardly like to assume that the foundations have been destroyed long before they actually have been. If the foundations have been destroyed, if we tell ourselves that, then we have an excuse to be in, in action. Right? You, you read, well, there's a bear in the street. There's, something, you know, there's always a reason why I can't do anything, right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and, and so forth, and, and I better not. There's giants in the land. There's a bear on the road. There's, there's many reasons. And so too many people engage with difficulty this way. Four steps. One, it's not such a big deal. It's too early to fight. Step two, yeah, this doesn't look good, but it's still too early to fight. Step three, yeah, it's really bad, but we're going to have a poor testimony if we fight, so it's still too early to fight. And then lastly, step four, shoot, it's too late. The bad guys won. <laughs> it's too late to fight. There's no point. 
We're always finding an excuse to not get our hands dirty. But courage puts on its work clothes and seeks to rebuild from the ruins. And again, looking at Israel's history, David as king would have certainly been thinking about Israel's history. Think about Ezra and Nehemiah. Very literally saw the foundations were destroyed. And did they just walk away? No. They started building. Get to work. Do something. Get your hands dirty. Okay? If the foundations are destroyed, get to work. And this is why, as Christians, for our own lives that we are, ought to live, the game plan actually doesn't change, even if the foundations are destroyed. Love the Lord. Live for His glory. Enjoy the peace of sin that is forgiven. Fight temptation. Fight shame. And fight despair with the joy that comes from a clean heart, knowing your sins are forgiven. Get to work. Keep farming. Keep pouring concrete. Keep building businesses. Keep getting married. Raise kids. Tell them the meaning of the story. Tell them stories with dragons in it so that they understand how the world works. Teach them to love Jesus. Plug into a local church. Be productive there. Take a meal to someone. Pray with a struggling saint. Invite someone over for coffee. Go fishing. Go play a round of golf. But don't give in to despair. Don't give in to despair. Keep going. Keep finding the next thing for your hands to do. And a clean heart does mean that we have access to God's feast table and a cup filled with blessing. And we are also to drink that cup all the way down. And then wipe our mouths off. Have a laugh with your friends, with your church, with your family, and go out and live for the glory of God. For the upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that you, uh, through your servant David, have shown us what it looks like uh, to be realistic about our surroundings, to be realistic about sin and corruption and ruin that we find all around us, in our own hearts, in our families, in our churches, and in society as a whole. And yet, Lord, like David, I pray that we would not despair. I pray that we would not uh, just take an attitude of self-preservation, trying to take care of number one, but that we would see our responsibility to one another, that we would see uh, that your instructions for us actually don't change. We need to trust in your purposes. We need to put our hands to something productive. We need to live for your glory. Lord, and I pray for each one here we will all be dealing with different circumstances in our families or at work or whatever that may have us feeling hopeless, that may have us feeling like there's no point. And the temptation to give up is strong. And yet, Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill us with a certain courage to see that if things are going wrong, that's just makes it that much more clear where we need to start working. And I pray that you would fill us with a holy courage and a holy boldness to get to work to repair the ruins, whether it's bad behavior in our marriage, whether it's an errant child, whether it's just laziness on our part at work. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to see where, where we can get to work. And then I pray that by your spirit that that work would be fruitful, that it would be productive, that it would be rewarding, and that we would see fruit in our lives. Lord, and of course, I pray the same for each family, and I pray the same for this church and the churches all around us. Lord, that you would give us a holy boldness to get to work, to, to fight back and to push with joy rather than with fear or panic. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the confidence that we can always approach your throne boldly at any time because you have promised that we bear no shame, we bear no guilt, and you are well pleased with us. Lord, help us to behold your face. 
thank you for your kindness. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.